Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hey, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Joining us today on the show, Jay Tenenbaum. Jay, thanks for joining us today. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Good. Nice to have you on the show. Here is a little bit about Jay. Jay is the founder and VP of Capital Development at AZP Capital and is also a certified keynote speaker and speaks nationally on note investing and related real estate topics. In his career, Jay has acquired over 275 distressed mortgage notes and properties in 24 states. So with that being said, Jay, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Sure. Thank you. So I was a debt collection attorney for 20 years, um, got out of that. And as I got into this type of investing, I guess it was just a question of I've been in debt all my life, just not personally. Just It was just, just different, <laughs> chasing a different debt instrument than uh, than debt collection. So that was the easy way, I guess, the, the natural segue of getting into this business. Um, once I got in, I was hooked. Um, and I love what I do. And it's something that, you know, drives my why every day. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. So today we're going to obviously talk about node investing. Can you tell our listeners uh, what node investing is exactly? Sure. So imagine yourself as the bank and not the landlord or the owner or the rehab or fix and flipper. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're buying paper. Uh, you may not probably ever own property. Uh, in the 275 assets that I have bought, I've only seen about 12. So not only am I investing in notes, but I do it out of state not anything in my own backyard. So, um, which isn't difficult. Um, it's just the way I wire to do things. Um, so you just basically, um, you're investing in paper. So, um, you become the bank, you become the lender, um, of someone else's originated note. And then you buy them at a discount and (coughs) you can just, um, Work out various exit strategies. There's multiple exit strategies in note investing um, more than just your normal fix and flip or wholesaling type deal. Okay. And so where do you go to find notes to purchase or who who do you work with when you're um, purchasing notes? So two things. One is you're not going to go to Bank of America, Wells Fargo and say, hey, can I buy a note on 12345 Main Street? Um, It's all relationship building. You're building relationships with banks and hedge funds all across the country. characterize myself is that I'm lazy, that I don't like to hunt. Uh, so I have developed these type of relationships over the years to where the assets come in on Excel spreadsheets to me on almost a daily basis. Got it. Okay. Awesome. So uh, there's a difference between a performing note and a non-performing note. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the differences? Sure. So a performing note is you're buying a note that's owned by somebody else, either directly from the bank or hedge fund or some other investor that bought it from the bank or hedge fund or somewhere down the food chain there. Um, and it, the borrower is currently paying on it. Um, depending on how far along he's been paying you, whether he may have never defaulted 
or he's been getting, you know, had a hiccup somewhere. And so, and he's, but he's currently paying. Um, sometimes if it's been, if it was a lag in, in the performance, it's sometimes maybe called a re-performing note. Um, I buy non-performing notes and then based upon my debt collection background, have the ability to speak with borrowers on probably a pretty effective basis, get them to start performing. And for me, I'd rather buy the non-performing notes because I'll get them at a steeper discount than I will for performing because the performing note will come with a higher premium typically. Got it. So you can invest in both, but it just sounds like maybe the non-performing performing note may be more risky, but a higher return. Yes, absolutely. And it's also your investor ID. Some people, you know, but it, it doesn't happen necessarily. It can happen, but it doesn't necessarily happen that you get a borrower to reperform overnight. Um, so some investors rather take, you know, invest in something that they're going to get the immediate cash flow. Got it. Okay. And so I can see why a bank would maybe want to get rid of a non-performing note, obviously, but why would a bank uh, hand off a performing note? Usually the performing notes um, are being sold um, from smaller banks who are just looking to free up their cash flow, free up their lend- their lending requirements. Um, a lot of the performing notes that are out there were non-performing at some point and then have been fixed by someone else like myself. Okay. And so when you say fix, what's your process of, of fixing? And I'm sure there's several different ways to go about it, but maybe you can, you can talk about how, what your process is from purchase to, you know, getting it to performing to then maybe the exit strategy. Sure. Do I have your permission, Kyle, to role play for a minute? Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, this conversation, um, which first of all, let me take a step back. I, as a debt collection attorney, our former debt collection attorney have the ability to talk to borrowers. It's not something that I would advocate your listeners to do. Basically, like, don't try this at home. Um, knowing, realizing that, and the, you know, as you want to teach this business to others, um, and also as I knew as, as I scale up my business, um, I helped recreate or re- reinstate a uh, nonprofit credit counseling company down in San Diego that um, will talk to borrowers for me and for and for others in this industry. But if I'm talking to a borrower, the conversation goes somewhere like this. Um, Hi, Kyle. My name is Jay Tenenbaum. I'm your lender. How may I help you? Okay, I'm not really sure. Exactly. There's about 30 seconds or or more of silence, (laughs) right? And apprehension and fear is going through your head because nobody's ever asked you that question before. Now, when you get your legs underneath you and you get a little confidence to answer my question, now you'll vomit your country western song on me. And you'll tell me everything that you wanted and tell me about, tell somebody at some point. But in that conversation, you will tell me, hey, I could afford $300 a month. And it's a typically, I've been doing this long enough that that type of conversation, the borrower is not giving me lip service to get me off the phone. He's sincere in what, you know, what he's offering. Um, I'll, have, I'll follow up with, you know, where is it coming from? What's changed between then and now? You know, so kind of some preliminary questions to make sure that he's really not blowing smoke. And um, at that point in time, because you've offered it to me in a sincere manner, my default rate is less than 10%. Um, and that's kind of really how, how, it, how it works out. Okay, got it. So would you say that uh, note investing is more of an active investment versus passive then? Not necessarily. Um, I, you know, am investing in this, in this as a business. But we work with partners, capital partners all the time that are in a strictly as a passive, a passive arena. Okay, got it. And so going back to you talking to the, the borrowers at that point, it kind of sounds like you're touching on their pain points and really trying to help them through the situation that they're struggling with. 
exactly. Like I said, you know, I, I was no rocket science, but scientist, but, you know, asking someone, how can you help them gives them an open-ended question, like I said, to just kind of come forward with whatever's going on. Um, I'm not about calling them up saying, you know, you're 20 years behind and, and I want payment tomorrow. Um, you know, they've, they've been down that road who, who, by whoever owned the note before me and before them and before them. You know, these, these notes are traded, so it's the non-performing side, are traded as commodities from the bank to a hedge fund to another hedge fund to a small investor such as myself. Then I will take that note and go like Star Trek and work it and, do, and go where no one else has gone before and actually try communicating with the borrower. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you approach it the right way, um, Basically, sometimes it's just a matter of timing. I mean, I've had to foreclose on borrowers. Um, I've had to primarily when they can't get out of their own way. Um, and I've worked out stuff on the eve of foreclosure with borrowers. Certain situations there were, you know, the guy's situation changed, but it didn't change until the eve of the foreclosure. Like I had a guy one time in Minnesota that <clears throat> called me up right before, on the, like days before the property was going to foreclosure sale. And the deal we worked out was precipitated on the fact that right then and not several months before, he, his kids got old enough, he's, going, he, he's divorced, so his kids were old enough where he no longer has to pay child support. He worked for the railroad and got a 65% wage increase, um, and he already and he paid off his truck. So he had the ability, had free ca additional cash available then as he approached me to work this out. Now I'll also tell you that in the Midwest, for example, um, the borrower's priority is paying off their trucks before they pay off their mortgages. <laughs> is there a reason why? <laughs> they're just they're just committed. They're committed to their their vehicles, and not because it's 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 it could be eventual shelter. They just love their trucks. Got it. Okay. So what does a foreclosure look like when it comes to a note? Is it the same process as, you know, uh, anything else? And from a passive investor standpoint, if they're passively investing in notes and then you have to foreclose, what's that process look like? So the process is, it goes this way. Um, if I'm buying, depending on the state I'm buying in, if I'm buying on the West Coast or buying in Texas, for example, between the security instrument, which is a deed of trust, um, you, the foreclosure process takes a very short West coast, Arizona, California, et cetera. The process could take, you know, 90, 90 to 120 days paying more for that note to buy it, not performing in the first place. I buy my assets in the Midwest and South, which is a different longer process called a judicial foreclosure where a lawsuit is actually filed. Um, and borrowers are served and it winds away through the courts and eventually goes to sale. You're getting those notes at a deeper discount. Um, as a passive investor, you just, you know, have to have the, the understanding that you're buying something at a bigger discount. So your rate, your expected rate of return will be higher, but you have to be patient enough to, to if I'm going to foreclose to wait out the process. Now through that process, the borrower, again, the borrower has been contacted before we started foreclosure. Maybe he couldn't get out of his own way. That's fine. During the foreclosure, we may or may not, you know, said I, my process is such where between the credit counselor and the foreclosure attorney, for the most part, we're, we're setting up good cop, bad cop. So they need some change of conversation during the process. Then remember at the end of the process, if it goes to foreclosure sale, property could be sold to third party. I've had that happen to be several times. So the investors paid well by going to sale or you take it back as an REO. Now it's, it's a property like, like most investors know, you just have acquired it differently, but the returns are still 
high because we if, because if you're doing the, if it's the right investment, you've mo I've modeled it out for my investors from beginning to end. Here's what it looks like if I get it to reperform, but here's what's going to look like if I have to take it back. And here's how the various forms of exit strategies that we may engage in, and here's what the expected returns may be. You just have to be patient. When we're working with our capital partners, we're looking at a two-year commitment, which gives us plenty of time to get the foreclosure done and dispose of it. Okay. And so when you're dealing with non-performing loans and so basically you're the bank, can you be as flexible as you want on the terms? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's the beauty of the thing. Okay. So let's go back to the conversation that you and I just had, right? I bought that. Let's say, for example, I bought that note for three, for $10,000 and you offer me $300. You think I'm not nimble enough to say yes on the spot. It's a 36% return. I think that's more than, than sufficient to make me and my investor partner happy. Don't, wouldn't you think? Right. Yeah. You know? um, now along those lines, um, what will happen is for example, you've got the note that's already been, you know, in default for so long. So in addition to the principal balance that you're talking, that you're working, modifying, so to speak, you've also got arrearages. Now, again, going back to the same conversation, if you've got $20,000 in arrearages, and I may ask you, hey, you know what? You have $5,000 to put down, I'll waive the rest. You may say, I don't have two nickels to rub together except for I'm gonna, I just started a new job and I can pay $300. So some investors would say, well, if you don't have any money to, to you know, pay down or pay off some of the rearages, then I'm not gonna do the deal. But again, even if I don't get a dime in a rearage money, I would still do that deal in a heartbeat. Okay. And you said you invest out of state. Is there certain states that you focus on and a reason why you invest in those states? The Midwest and the South, um, you know, Chicago, Illinois. I got a love-hate relationship with Illinois right now. For, As do I. Um, taxes are a little <laughs> high. And everybody's, whenever you try to sell something, everybody's got their, their finger in it wanting a piece of it. Yep. Um, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Alabama. Those are my, my favorite states. I've bought double digits probably in those states plus maybe wisconsin pennsylvania and some others um you're gonna see the reason i like in those states is when i get a tape in a spreadsheet those states are going to be on that tape almost every time and those are still the areas where i'm getting the better the best the best discounts okay and when you say tape can you explain it's an Excel that? spreadsheet just just vernacular in this business it's just an excel spreadsheet got it Okay. And so what types of returns um, are you seeing on your non-performing notes? So I'll answer the, that question this way. Um, if I'm buying what we consider low value assets where the property uh, values are $50,000 or less. Now, mind you, they're not in the Midwest. $50,000 is going to be um, somebody's blue collar middle-class neighborhood. That's just where, you know, in that, in the mid middle America, that's just what it is. Right. Um, but if I'm buying it in what we consider a lower value class, um, you're going to get, you know, decent discounts and your numerical returns are going to be, you know, you know, you know, astonishing. Um, but for example, the conversation we just had, you know, a $300 a month is going to, is, you know, pay, basically only three quarters of a grape. Now, if I'm buying an asset that is worth 75 to $150,000, my expected numerical return is going to be maybe mid-teens, but I may be putting $800 to $1,200 back in my pocket. I'm getting one quarter of a, of a watermelon. So um, it all depends. I mean, you know, you, you, you just work out the best that, that, you know, and really when I'm working with a capital investor, um, 
it's really about understanding their goals and objectives. Um, it's easy to, 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 you know, I will ask the question, what are they investing in now? What kind of returns they're getting now? And knowing that whatever I have available to, uh, to invest in, um, is it possible to, uh, you know, beat or exceed their returns? So it's not really a numerical number that says, hey, I've got to hit this or, or not or bust. It's just a matter of just feeding, feeding their, um, you know, their goals and objectives. Okay, perfect. So do you have a set criteria what you look for? Or is it basically case by case based on the investor and their goals? Um, I will typically um, buy assets um, that I'm looking at, um, model them out, finish my diligence, model them out, then go to my investor and say, here's what the deal looks like. Um, and I've had a converse, probably I've had a conversation or two with the investor even before I brought a specific deal to the table to know exactly what they, what they're looking for. Um, and so when it comes time, it's easy for them to make a decision because they've seen kind of prior funded deals and what those numbers and that, that format look like. Um, the one time in my career that I, for the, for what I characterize is that I went shopping for an investor, investor came to me one time and said about, I got half a million dollars, burning a hole in my pocket, go find me some assets. But when I did, he bailed out of the last minute. See, ordinarily, I, you know, I'll tell you that money finds good deals. So I go find the assets first, finish my diligence, model them out, and then go raise capital for them. And, you know, and that's not hard to do. I've done it, you know, for several years now. I've raised in, in a small, in cutting my teeth on the small asset class over $6 billion doing it this way. Um, it gets a little chaotic at times trying to, trying to close your deal on time and, and, and coordinate it with your investor capital, but it works. Okay. And so going back to the foreclosure, what, what percentage would you say uh, foreclose versus taking a non-performing and getting it to perform? So industry average is probably close to whatever you're buying, whether it's three notes, 36 notes, whatever. Industry average is about a third of what you're going to buy is going to re-perform. A third of what you buy, the borrower is going to come to you and say, you know what, take my house. Here's the, here's the, here's the deed. It's called a deed in lieu of foreclosure. And the third, you're going to foreclose on. Now, between my expertise and or using the credit counselor, my industry, my my portfolios run higher in the in the forty mid forties for both the reperforming side and the dean lose. So I foreclose less than most. Okay, and, and again, when and again, it usually happens because this guy just can't get out of his own way. Right. And so when you do the deed and lose, what is your kind of rule of thumb as far as uh, what you do with it then? Because you have you now have ownership of the property, correct? Correct. So, I mean, it's really a couple of things going to the analysis. Number one, first time I ever got a deed in lieu from somebody, um, I did it in kind of a unique way. I spoke to the borrower. She said, look, I'm on unemployment. I can't afford the house anymore. Now, I know several of, I don't know, the usual conversation with most debt collectors types would have been going, going right for the juggler saying, fine, if you can't afford the house, give me the deed in lieu back. Right, because it's easy, you know, try to get the, the the efficiency and get and save money on foreclosing. I, but that's still a, an emotional process for a borrower. If you think about it, right, they got emotional equity in their house. Mm -hmm. So I just kept letting her talk, and during that conversation, the country western part of, the, of that conversation was she offered me the deed and loan, and all we did was negotiate how much time we would give her to, to move to move out. Um, in order for me to accept one, I would have to go back and review my title report to make sure there were no judgment liens or second mortgages or anything on the, on the, on the title, because I wouldn't take a deed and inherit that because in a foreclosure that all gets wiped out. 
but and and remember but in the beginning before i bought as i was i closed before i closed on the asset i modeled it out as to what the extra strategies would look like if i took the property back anyway so if i get it back that way all i've done is said okay the possibility of, re, of getting to reperforming is out the window um i'm short-circuiting the opportunity necessity to have to foreclose but now i own it anyway and i'm fine with that i have my teams built in those markets that i'm buying in and whether we uh, sell or finance it or rent it or lease option it or flip it or sell it wholesale. I mean, those are the primary strategies we'll use. Got it. Okay. So you will take any of those strategies. There's not one that you kind of stick with. No, not at all. You got to be got resourceful it. and you got to be flexible. Yeah, no, it sounds like you can be definitely flexible in this business and there's a lot of different opportunities as far as exit strategies, which is great. Okay. So what else can you tell us about note investing that would appeal to a passive investor? Um, it's a it's a terrific passive investment opportunity for the investor that's patient. You want to align yourself with someone like myself that's an, what we call an operator that's been experienced in this business and knows what they're doing to manage it for them. But you've got to be the investor has to be the passive invest the passive investment returns are extraordinary um, and good for your IRA money, etc. You just have to be patient because that may not all come together in five minutes. Now, having said that, um, one of the things that I do when I'm working with, with passive investors are if I'm buying in the low balance space, I will make sure that we're buying sufficient number of assets to diversify the risk. Meaning if I'm buying $50,000 houses, properties that are notes against $50,000 houses, um, I'm going to make sure we're buying at least three or more because you want the diversity of risk. Not that you're gonna throw one in the garbage, but you know you wanna make sure that the portfolio that the, that the purchase it overall you know, generates sufficient return. Now on a loan by loan basis, the minute we work something out, the investor may re will receive the, the cash flow. It's not always you know, backloaded where you don't receive it until the end. Um, so if I'm buying in a higher value class, the investor's gonna spend more money as far as the capital acquisition but you've got more room or margin to minimize your risk. So it's really a matter of, of if I'm an investor, you're looking for someone who will talk, discuss with them the diversity or the minimization of risk and that um, the cash flow, where the cash flow is coming from and how soon. Okay. And so typically, do you buy portfolios then of non-performing? You're never um, per purchasing just one note. Is it usually multiple? Um. Yes. Um, let, let me explain. So, for example, in 2014, when I first started, um, I started late 13, um, we bought 29 notes. I bought three. Two weeks later, I bought 20. I bought a, uh, four, another four, another two during separate transactions. In 2015, we bought 38 in February. We bought 38 in November and a couple of small trades in the middle, which we, we ended up buying 100 assets that year alone. In 2016, we sat down and said, wait a second, these two large trades, you know, the bookended trades that we did were chaotic. Um, just, you know, because both of them, we, we actually filtered through about 90 plus assets to get down to the 38 we bought. Um, in 2016, we set out and said, okay, um, let's make a bid on, say, a quarter million dollars a month. And so I would go to the seller that I, relationships that I had, um, cherry pick, you know, just basically pick out whatever ones, you know, if there's a, tape that comes in or spreadsheet with 400 notes on it. I'm just going to pick out the ones that I want. That's called cherry picking. Um, 
And so I put a bid in of say $250,000. Now through diligence, doesn't mean that I closed on all 250 because in diligence, some things would drop out. So in that year, we bought 77 assets. The largest trade I did that year was 12. The smallest trade I did was one. The trade, the bids were, were made with, with higher amounts of loans. Just after diligence, that's what ended up happening. But we bought loans 10 or 11 of those 12 months. Okay. So for, from a passive investor, I'm just trying to get make sure everyone understands. Then let's say in the beginning of the year, you bought 38 notes. Right. Is that one passive investor that let's just say invested 20 grand, is he in on all 38 notes and how they perform or a specific note? Or is it throughout the year you, you obtain more and then just give them their preferred return? Okay. So if you're putting this together in a, in a, in a, pro, in a formal fund, that would probably happen somewhere along the, those kind of lines. What we do is a little different. Um, we are, if I'm buying, a, a, if I'm coming to you to invest in a deal, it's a specific deal with specific identified assets. And then that, and for a two-year commitment. And if I go out and buy four more notes tomorrow, it's going to be either you can reinvest additional capital for that specific deal, which would be separate than your first deal or, or another, use another investor. Okay. Got it. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. So if there was one thing that made a note investment, a good investment or a bad investment, what would that one thing be? Well, on the bad side, the, the investment is bad when you buy it at the wrong price, because while I spoke before about how um, uh, there's, you know, multitude of invest of, of exit strategies and you can, you know, utilize those and have the, have options available. If you buy it, you know, there's no such thing as a bad note, just a bad price. If you buy it at a, pri- a bad price, you're going to put yourself at, behind the eight ball as far as, you know, reach, reaching those, those projected returns. Now, having said that at the end of the day, if time is not a factor and you end up with a property back, taking a property back and leasing it, renting it, you know, using something like that in a pass in a, in a long-term nature, you'll end up fine. So other than losing the property to tax sales, which is really the line of the jungle, you could always probably make your money back on any asset that you, that you bought if time was not a factor. And that was how you ended up with the exit strategy. Now, sometimes you end up with situations where, you know, um, it just doesn't make sense to rehab it. So you want to wholesale it. So again, if I didn't buy it at the right price, my ability to wholesale it, the, the, the asset, not the note anymore, may be limited. Um, you know, good investment. Um, a good investment is obviously buying at the right price because you keep all your various exit strategies alive. Um, but just buying, you know, quality stuff. Not, I mean, there's no such thing as a pink unicorn. Or maybe some new investors are always looking at a pink unicorn note. I mean, I'm a shoot rate aim kind of guy. So I'll buy things that work out of my diligence, but my diligence is made to be flexible. So a good investment is just something that, you know, I have all my investment exits away, all my exit strategies available to me to utilize at what may work the best. Okay. And you look into buy on like 40 cents on the dollar, 50 cents, 60 cents, or does it really depend on the asset that you're purchasing? It depends on the asset. It depends on, it depends on the state. It depends on the value, the, the, the bucket class that we're talking about. It also depends upon market conditions. I mean, I'm buying stuff now, um, a little higher price than I, than I would, would have bought in 2014. The market conditions have gone up a little bit. Um, your higher value assets, your $75,000, $150,000 assets will command a higher price, but there's more margin there. So you just got to be really careful buying the lower value stuff, which is catered to the investor with, lit, with more limited capital. 
Um, but again, it comes with its risk that you don't want to overpay for that because your, your servicing costs, your foreclosure costs, for example, are going to be the same, whether it's a small value note or larger value note. So you got to be careful that you're not going to eat away your margins and expenses. Okay, perfect. Well, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions now. All right, super interesting. All right, Jay, so let's go ahead and jump into our final four questions. Um, what is the one tool that you use in note investing that you could not do without? The one tool, um, the one tool that I would, couldn't do without, um, again, I outsource a lot of what I do. So it's the tool, it's, it would be tools, but just making sure that you're, that the vendors are always working out. Like I, you know, have an outsource for my retail reports. I have an outsource for my taxes. Um, you know, the tools I use, obviously, well, I guess the debt collection side of it, because if you can't talk to a borrower effectively, um, you limit your exit strategy. So having the, the availability of the credit counselor or myself, but for another, another investor that without my experience, just having the, the credit counselor availability of a credit counselor would be the one tool that I think would be crucial um, to any other investor. Perfect. Uh, can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in note investing so far? And what is that main takeaway for our listeners? So I, first off, I would say that um, in being resourceful and adaptable, you minimize your mistakes. You go into this business knowing that you're going to stub your toe going, going, you know, along the way, so figure out how to just rip off the bandaid and, and move forward. So, um, I have a couple stories that, you know, may not be the biggest mistakes necessarily, but the, the moral of the story is how they were overcome. For example, I had a property in Chicago that, or no, that I bought in Chicago that uh, the, the, the proper, the second floor of this property burnt down. Um, and so now, um, you know, obviously, I, and the, the, so, you know, obviously now I've got a note that's, that's at a burned down property now. The takeaway was I was insured and I was adequately insured. Mm -hmm. So one of the things was if you insure your assets, first of all, you insure your assets immediately after you purchase, but do you insure them for what you paid for it? What you, what the relative value for it is or the unpaid principal balance. And you, in the beginning, for example, this case, I I bought the note for 60 grand property's worth a hundred and the unpaid balance was actually $145,000. So I insured it for a hundred. And when the, I made the insurance claim. I got paid a hundred thousand dollars. So now I made forty thousand dollars on a deal, but I still had a note on a against a burned out property. So I either could foreclose on the borrower, but why would I spend that kind of money on something that had really right. limited value? So I went to the borrower. Actually, she was a uh, she spoke Spanish, so, but I spoke to her. I was speaking to her son. Um, her son was 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 a um, contractor in. Chicago suburb who did a lot of rehab work for insurance companies. So he was great letting the adjusters in the property and all that. I went back to him and said, Hey, would mom want to give me a deed in lieu? Um, because she'd already moved out. So I knew that she wasn't tied to the property anymore. And, uh, you know, just figure out some way to dispose of the property. And at first he said, yes. Then he came back to me and he says, I think she wants to do a short sale. So I ended up short selling for another $12,000. Um, so I got rid of that that way. Um, the only other, story like horror story um was i had a, an asset note in toledo and what i didn't know at the time um which when you're buying the stuff in in you know that's traded for as as commodities for so long is there uh, was a, a drug overdose in the second floor um 
I don't know if it was the original borrower, somebody in the in the property uh, before I bought it um, died in the house. Okay, not the worst thing. I mean, you have you have those those opportunities, but once after I took it back, <clears throat> I had it secured. Another guy in the neighborhood was getting uh, get, got an altercation with the police. And during the police chase, he broke into the house, got into a shootout with the police, and was killed in the house. So the local investors in the area, the wholesale two, didn't want anything to do with it. Now, the takeaway was we just ended up uh, disposing of the asset, uh, you know, giving it to the city of Toledo as a tax write-off. But, I mean, that, that bad luck can happen to too many people very often, right? Mm-hmm. Man, lucky if those are your only biggest mistakes. <laughs> they are. Right. Like said, as long as you're resourceful, you can make chicken salad out of just about anything. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jay, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Uh, what I need to do? You know what? Um, somebody, my father had a, had a great life. Um, uh, he was in, we worked with our mom and owned catering service for 40 plus years. And his life was, was so nice, so easy for him that it was like his friends would tell him, you know, when you retire, how would you know? Um, <laughs> I guess, I, I guess I feel the same way. Like I just am just enjoying what I do so much that um, just keep growing. I mean, I guess we are headed for another correction at some point mm-hmm. uh, when it is, who knows, but um, just being geared up when America goes back on sale a little bit, it, what I'm buying now, I'll buy even cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and just being poised and ready to, ready to go there. Um, other than that, you know, every day by day, you know, just continuing to build, um, you know, getting more notes to reperform. Um, last year we, we spent a little bit of time kind of selling off some of the stuff that had been performing over several years. Cause you can't continue to hoard, you know, hoard assets because they get too unmanageable at times. So you kind of get them working up, resell some stuff, but keep your, your pipeline moving. So, um, I'm in probably acquisition mode again this year. Um, a little bit and just kind of just always tweaking and always refining your processes. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And lastly, where can people find out more about you? So I can be reached. Uh, email is J A Y at a Z P capital.com. That's like Adam zebra Paul, or I will answer my cell phone. 714-458-6317. Perfect. Well, thank you for the insight and advising all of us on note investments. Uh, We talked about the advantages of buying and owning notes and the opportunities that can arise from it. So with that being said, thank you everyone for spending some time with us today. Jay, thanks for your time and being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.